Elliot. Yeah? Close your eyes. Why? Just trust me. Close them. What do you picture when I say beehive? I think of like a beehive hairdo, maybe fiery red like Peg Bundy, or Fembots from Austin Powers, or yeah, just I'm getting beehive hairdo. Even the Martian lady disguised from Mars Attacks. I, I really want to know what the fuck you did to your brain. So what does that mean? Like, what is this? Some sort of, like, verbal Rorschach test? Does it mean my mom doesn't love me or something? No, no, I mean, I, I can't speak on that last one. You know, no comment. But I was just kind of curious, like, what a, a non-beekeeper would think when, when you say whatever it was I said, beehive. All I got was hair. Hair. Okay. Great. We're in a good spot. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're talking about hair or beehives or, you know, ice cream cone tops, whatever. Brought to you by Raytheon. <laughs> I mean, wow, that's there's a lot to unpack there for an intro. Yeah, and thanks to the power of Raytheon, you won't have to unpack anything. They'll unpack it all for you in one fell swoop. So the ice cream tops are called skeps. Yeah, like when you think of beehives and they have the logo and it's like all like naturey and it's got like the weird thing that looks like an ice cream top. Yeah, that, that's a skep. But we're not talking about those today. Today, we're talking about the most common hives you'll see, which really could get a full like series or multi-episode. But, you know, we've already got a list of 300 episodes that are like urgent. So we're going to consolidate some of that. Today, we're talking about your boy. Reverend Lorenzo Langstroth, clergyman, beekeeper, and teacher, who is considered today to be the father of American beekeeping. Okay, so he's that lanky boy. He is the daddy langlegs. Yeah, yeah, Langstrodamus. The Reverend Triple L. So let's talk about that Revy Lang. I want to preface this with the fact that while he is the father of the modern beehive, we don't actually use his design, and despite his credential, he didn't really invent anything totally unique. As the internet would say, y'all ain't ready for that, though. Yeah, and I've been meaning to tell you we need to get you off of the internet. I'll just tell you about it now. We're going to schedule your intervention. Please. Please do. I close my eyes and I see the internet and it's bad. I It's bad. So with all of this in mind, let's go back in time. Not that long ago, Elliot. Just, you know, to the 18th century. Swiss naturalist Francois Hubert developed a, what he called movable comb or movable frame hive that featured wooded leaves filled with honeycombs that could be flipped like the pages of a book. Now, despite this innovation, Hubert's hive was not widely adopted, and simple box hives remained the popular choice for beekeepers until the 1850s. Okay, enter Reverend Langstroth, a.k.a. Sweet Low. Sweet Low makes, like, a great, like, I don't know, like, I feel like he, he would, like, perform with the roots as, like, a special guest. Yeah, right? I could see it, sure. Right? Sure. Right? Like, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it, I guess. You'll, thank you, Elliot. Thank you. Let's talk about the Langy Boy. So while messing with the side open leaf hives that were popular in Europe at this time, which were basically what they sound like, they were pretty similar to Uber's design. Langstroth came to a decision to build hives that instead of the frames being movable, they would just be fully removable. The idea was basically that less damage to comb would be better for the hives. I know, you're thinking that there's no way no one thought of this for the hundreds of years before him, right? Well, here's the thing. 
Bees hate voids, and they tend to fill any open spaces with propolis, which is basically like a bee glue. And this keeps things in place to reduce drafts and like has a whole bunch of benefits that we'll talk a little bit about towards the end of this series. What made his design in particular so valuable was that he figured out the spacing that was just big enough to stop the propolis application while wasting as little space as possible. And we're literally talking about like a centimeter. So he was like a bee nerd is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. Honey was also much more important at this time than it is today because it was like one of the only local sources of sugar in northern climates. So how much do you think he spent watching bees to figure out the exact spacing to figure out that centimeter? I mean, at least years. But to be fair, there wasn't like TV or, you know, Instagram. Yeah, or the internet. Yeah, truly golden age. I mean, okay, so I'd watch the shit out of some bees, I guess, but I don't think I could do it for years. I also don't think I would learn or discern anything. You know what I mean? By doing that, I just feel like I'd... It'd be, just, it'd be like a space out. You're just like watching the bees and like two hours have passed and you're like, what happened? Like basically that's your fucking muse for meditation. Yeah, I just don't know if I could figure out the pattern of bees. There's too much going on. Yeah, that's fair. Do you pick one bee and follow it, or do you just watch, like, in mass? How the hell do you... Like, I don't even know how to approach something like that. It's like the um, the optical illusions. You just kind of look at it, and you're like, if I don't look at anything, I can see it all. Yeah, man, what drugs are you on now? Don't worry about it. Can I have some? <laughs> of course, Elliot. I will always give you drugs. I'm a good friend. Anyway. Yeah. I mean... Okay, but but really, I feel like you got to be in like a pretty, I don't know, either bored or maybe just, I don't know, what kind of void do you have to have in your life to dedicate to just years of watching bees? Funny you should say that. So beekeeping was for, you know, the Langbox master here, a distraction from what he described as bouts of severe depression. So I'm guessing the Bible wasn't solving all of his problems. Okay, so if you're going to be depressed, make a mortal enemy that's inconsequential, like bee glue, a.k.a. propolis. That is not enough respect for propolis, first off. but Bee concrete? Boncrete? No, don't, I don't like that don't at all. Don't you dare. Sorry. All right, anyways, let's, let's move on from the sad propolis, the depropolis. Get it? Depressed propolis? Come on. All right, we're fine. Degrading. I'm done. We're slipping into a black hole that we just, we're not going to be able to get out of. That it's we, it's we, got its own gravity. Yeah, we cannot fill that black hole with beagle, is what you're saying. To get to our, our buddy, Langy Boy, despite the fact that he is like self-proclaimed this man who has discovered this unique spacing, he wasn't, actually. Dr. Jan Jerzon a Polish apiarist who had 20 years prior actually discovered the same exact spacing that he ended up using in the Langstroth box, but he applied it to top bar hives. Okay, so he got beat to the punch and he was just wasting time, but he still he still figured figured it out though himself. You know, that's cool. Well, here's the thing. Dr. Jan published it, because I'm not going to pronounce that last name twice and correctly. Jurgen. Yeah, that one. <coughs> our boy Langstroth uh, openly admitted that he knew of our, our good friend, Dr. Polish person's work. But for some reason, all of that has been mostly ignored in reporting on the Langstroth hive, even though today a quick Google search will show that fact. So 
you guys that are listening can go Google search Dr. Jan Turn and um, you know, prove prove what I said. Now, like I said, we could do a whole episode on Langy and his buzzy boys, but we're gonna have to keep this one super tight. Yeah, keep it tight like the Langstroff hive. You know, classic old school white dude. He's holding his depression together with propolis and a theory that it's not wasting time just watching bees for science. For science. So, again, here's the thing. I feel like I'm saying that a lot this episode. I don't think people really appreciate it when we're talking about, like, propolis, like what you're saying, that it's like glue. So, when I say propolis is like glue, it's like the good glue, like the shit that, like, you you can't use with the windows closed, not like Elmer's, right? Now, when they use this propolis to glue stuff together, you need to, like, use a pry bar to get it apart. So... Needless to say, for people that weren't familiar with work being done in Poland, it was a big deal to figure out how to make a hive not only not stick, but also as light as possible, which is ultimately what the Langstroth hive does. Okay, and so by good glue, you mean Elmer's isn't like the good stuff? Yeah, not usually, unless you're uh, in kindergarten chewing on it. And you think it tastes good? Yeah. It tastes, yeah. I was never a paste eater. Were you? No, but I've seen a lot of people put it on their hands and, like, peel it off. I mean, that's kind of fun, but, like, when you're five or 20, I don't know. Don't ask me. Anyways, let's let's get back. <laughs> not important at all. Now, our Langy boy was not impressed by the modern hives that existed at this time, despite the fact that he wasn't even, like, a beekeeper professionally. He was a self-described amateur beekeeper. In his own words... The result of all these investigations fell far short of my expectations. I became, however, most thoroughly convinced that no hives were fit to be used, unless they furnished uncommon protection against extremes of heat and, more especially, of cold. I accordingly discarded all thin hives made of inch stuff and constructed my hives of doubled materials, enclosing a dead air space all around. Now, for the beekeeper folks listening, this might sound weird because that's not what a Langstroth hive looks like today. But there's a lot of people interested in insulating the Langstroth because of the fact that the modern ones don't look like this today. Now, I personally would also love to see hives back at like an inch or more thick, which he considered thin. So, do the materials in wood that the hive is made of come into play here, or has that changed at all? So I'm pretty sure they used pine like historically because it's cheap and was easily available and it was light. Today's hives are only like three quarters of an inch thick. So like they've shrunk even by his minimalist standard at that point where he was saying it was too thin. I'm imagining most of the hives back then were like close to like two inches thick. So the hives went from being like Rubenesque to looking like, say, Kate Moss. <laughs> what is time, I don't know who that is. What has time done to us? Yeah, so being the king that he was, as we can tell from all of his just, you know, peculiarities, uh, his design was quickly mimicked, and he spent most of the rest of his career fighting legal battles over his patent, even though he shouldn't have had a patent. You know, we can talk about that again later at some point. And it was basically slightly modified and mass-produced by an industrial beekeeper named A.I. Root. Yeah, so he was a true man of God, and he was also feeding that capitalist machine. So nice. Good on him. Yeah, he was. You would think he'd be happy that so many people can benefit from his knowledge and successes, right? That's what a true man of God would want. That said, the hive has stuck around. And um, 
You know what else has stuck around, Elliot? Sponsors of this podcast. Oh, here we go. Hey there. Is your name George? Do you use foundations to funnel money to organizations to bypass tax regulation? Are you recognized as maybe funding radical leftist movements across the globe? Well then, this commercial is for you. Specifically you, George. My name is Andy, and the Poor Pearls Almanac is looking for you. Come fund our program. We've got boomsticks. We collectivize the energy of the sun with plants. If this sounds like an ad made explicitly for you, go support the Poor Proles Almanac at poorproles.com. Welcome back. So let's talk about what exactly makes up that uh, cheap-to-buy, cheap-to-make Langstroth hive. Yeah, it's at least two inches thick. Mine is not. Well... (laughs) That sounds terrible. It's supposed to be. (laughs) It's supposed to be two inches thick. It depends on how you measure it. Anyways, so so there are a few basic components I want to cover. You didn't think I was listening. I I know you're listening. I thought you were talking about something else. So we'll go someplace else with that. We're talking about beehives. We're talking about beehives. Not anything else that would be two inches thick. So there are base, some basic components I want to cover. Obviously, this is a very we're we're doing a podcast. This is a very topical like discussion of it. It can be more complicated uh, very easily. But having you know taken beekeeping classes myself multiple times actually because I didn't feel like I truly understood what was going on, and then I realized it wasn't that I didn't understand. It was that what they were doing was insane. So like. Stuff got lost. And uh, in this process, you know, when you see all the pieces that go into a beehive, it can be like overwhelming. So we're going to do it very basically, very simply, make it super accessible. Start from the top to the bottom because, you know, people know what a roof looks like, but they don't know what a bottom board looks like. So like a bottom board is like the floor. (laughs) I I don't know. It's the roof's evil twin, as they say. They say that, Elliot. I promise you, they say that. Get you off the internet. This is, get, this is getting yes. sick. It's getting yes. sick. Please, please do. So at the top, you've got two covers. You've got the outer cover, the inner cover. The outer cover is your roof. The inner cover basically keeps the bees from trying to glue down the roof. It also has a couple other benefits, but that's basically, it's not like something you need to know extensively about. Below this is where you'd keep like all of your hive, right? It's like a an apartment building. Um, the top floor is your uh, super if you're collecting honey. And if you're not collecting honey and you're feeding, that would be where you put your feeder. Then right below your supers is your hive body where the bees live. But to keep the bees or keep the queen from going up and laying in your supers where your your honey is, there's a queen excluder, which is just like a thing that's just wide enough so worker bees can get up. But you know, the queen can't fit. So that way she never lays any eggs in your honey. So when you go harvest your honey, you're not like killing bees. It's a great thing, right? So you've got your supers under your roof, and then you've got your queen excluder, and then you got like the place where everyone lives. Those are either your mediums or deeps. Now, mediums are about six and five eighths inches tall, while deeps are nine and five eighths inches tall. Most people today use the mediums because they're so much easier to move. Like if you've got one that's full of honey, it weighs about 40 to 45 pounds, while like a deep will weigh about 70 pounds. So like there's a big weight difference. And if you're a smaller person, 
that 20, 25 pounds can be like a, a real deal breaker, right? Now, those same frames that you use for mediums and deeps are the same exact ones you'll use for your supers where you store your honey. The only difference is you've got that queen excluder between where the honey is and where the bees live. Otherwise, that is basically it. They have like shallows, which are not very common as well. They're a little bit smaller, but like that is everything. Then you have your bottom board, right? Where the bees come in and out. And that's basically it. Like I said, the only thing that's different between the mediums and deeps and the supers is that the supers can be either a medium or a deep, except the mediums and deeps, as we call them, that are because they're where the baby bees live. Not super complicated, right? I mean, I think that made sense. It's sort of the hierarchy or what's it called, like a cross-section of the beehive that you can sort of just take little slides out as you need to. Yeah, as you want to collect honey. To get your honey, yeah. Yeah, this all works because bees build comb in like fairly predictable ways. And what beekeepers do is try to take advantage of this tendency. Now, in the wild, if a honeybee was flying around, they find a tree cavity, they usually will go to the top and build down, right? Like that's what you picture is like these weird like half semicircle saggy things coming down, right? So that's how they would build in the wild. So you'll put them in like a medium or a deep and they'll build down based on where you put the frames, which is like the top of the roof, right? So what we do is we have the frames inside, which is basically a piece of wood that's a one by two inch wide piece of wood. And then very often we'll put a wax foundation right down the middle, basically to really show the bees like, this is the perfect spot to build your home, right guys? It's like literally right there. Everything's prepped for you. You then don't accidentally make it a way that doesn't, isn't ideal for the beekeeper. A lot of the foundations that we use are also imprinted with a hexagonal pattern cell that's the same shape as the comb, so they can follow it like a little guide. Okay, so in nature, bees don't like build a uniform shape to their hive. They just sort of build around, over, under, whatever they need to in order to build their hive, right? So all of this is obviously just to make it so that they're domesticated and so that we can have easy access to the goods without disrupting you know, their lives and habitat and, and well, we are, but we're, we're making it, but it's not, um, it's something they can work with, right? That, yeah. That's, that's pretty much what we're trying to do. And you're saying all these little half inches and centimeters makes a huge difference to how these bees operate because if it's, the space is too big, they'll fill the propolis or they'll, you know, make the wrong section of the hive or, or do all these different things. We're steering bees with how we make the structure here. Exactly. Like we're basically giving them the obviously easy choice so that they're like, duh, I'm going to do it this way because like this is obviously the, you know, it's like baiting them basically for where they're building their comb. And it's pretty cool because as they'll build it out, uh, they'll keep like the perfect spacing between each frame. And then a lot of times they'll build little tunnels between the frames so they can get around the hive quickly, uh, which is like really cool to see them like understand the dynamics of like efficiency right it's, it's just really cool now if you don't use foundations they'll still very often build the way you want them to more or less but they often won't be like straight so on its surface the system for keeping bees in a langstroth hive is pretty like simple and streamlined and i think this is what attracts the uh, new pe uh, new people that are into beekeeping or getting into beekeeping towards the langstroth hive it's very common 
parts are accessible. Uh, it's very simple and it's very easy to find somebody who can show you how to work with this system. While it's not the only type of hive I use, it I still do use them for the fact that I've started using them. So I've already got like a bunch of materials and they're nice because they're cheap to buy materials for, like I said, and that just like, it's hard to pass up when things are cheap. Yeah. So it's like the Langstroth Model B. Get it like the Model T, but the B's? No, no, I got it. Listen, man. I'm just trying to help. The the economy is hard enough. It's on brand. Why, why you got to come for my job like this? I'm trying to go for job security. I thought we were in there. We're this together. Yeah, not that together. I got my brand, Elliot. Come on. You're the black guy. Yeah, I'm literally here to just learn how to forage, so. <laughs> yeah, so, all right. Basically, how this works is in the spring, you've got your medium or deep out there with your new package of bees. And when you get that mostly filled up with comb and they're laying eggs and all that stuff, you add a second box, whether that's a medium or a super. The queen will work her way up because it's warmer and has more space, at least at first. Sometimes with the deeps, they won't, so you have to flip them. But I'm going to talk about that more in one second. So as that starts to fill up, if you're doing the mediums, which, are, like I said, are far more common today, you go to add a third medium, but like as I was hinting with the deeps, you basically play hot potato and rotate the boxes so that the new one is in the middle and the second box is on the bottom. Okay, so I just pictured you playing like, you know, the cup game, but with drawers full of bees. Yeah, and this is the thing that really sucks about the Langstroths, despite all of the other easy parts. I mean, there's there's a few shortfalls, but this one is the one that's, I think, the most confusing and damaging for the bees. Not only is it damaging for, like, any animal to have its home constantly treated like a cup game or whatever, or, um, what is it, the Jenga? Is that the right one? The one where all the pieces are, all the, everything is collapsing every time you pull out a piece? Yeah, sure. It sounds like you're describing most major American cities, but yeah, yeah, like Jenga. Yeah, the game, Elliot, come on. So I guess like the idea of like constantly rotating the frames so that they have to travel all around the hive because they don't like to have empty space in the middle of like where they're living. So they're going to fill it out. Whereas like we had mentioned a few minutes earlier, traditionally bees will go to the top of the roof of a cave or wherever they're living and build down. They don't typically build from the middle or bottom and go up. So we have to work with the way they think and try to get them to do these things. The only time they'll go up is when they have no more space. And even then, like I said, sometimes they'll just assume there's no space above them, uh, which is just like, it, it can make things complicated is my point, right? So is this actually necessary or is this one of those things people just do because they saw somebody else do it or they were told to do it, like paying taxes? Have you not been paying your taxes? What are you, a Fed? I mean... I'm going to be president, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> well played. To answer what question, the question you asked me, if you don't, they will sometimes go up. But like I said, if you leave that hole in the middle, they're going to fill the hole. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. They won't let a gap stay inside uh, where the babies live, basically. There's no way I can say this without it not sounding like I'm, I'm making a sex joke. That's why it's the birds and bees. Well, we're talking about the bees now. Yeah. You get it? I, I don't feel great about this. <laughs> so, in the spring, you've got the, the bees living, right? And they're, they're happy. They survived the spring. The flowers are out. They're collecting nectar. All that good stuff is happening, right? The bees have been trapped in this box 
all winter long. You throw a medium on top or whatever it is, a super on top, and they're pumped because they are so happy to like have new space, even though this doesn't happen in nature. And that is something we should be concerned about a little bit too, but they're happy about this. So they'll, they'll move out of that, right? One of the things that's really important to understand when we're talking about like using mediums and deeps is that the total depth of like a two box deep frame or three mediums is about the same around 18 and a half inches. Now that is the ideal amount of space for preparing for the coming winter in cool temperate climates. So like places like where we live in New England through like Ohio and the Rust Belt and like staying kind of south of like the, the frigid cold, right? Now, this is something that's really important for how bees survive is how they store their honey and the spacing that you give them to do that. The problem that we have with the way we manage these Langstroth hives is that because the home is constantly being shuffled around or you're taking supers off the top, bees won't really manage to prepare a nest for winter because of all these things. So what a lot of beekeepers should do and don't do is save a medium of honey from the middle of the summer and then bring it back in the fall to set it on top of the hive so that they have honey that's available for them throughout the winter. A lot of reasons why people don't is because it's cutting into your bottom line and most beekeepers will instead just give them sugar since it's cheaper to prepare for winter. So you end up with dying beetus, you know, like a pun on the band name. I mean... That is that is a new one, but it's still an awful pun. Yeah, it's it's uh it's not great, but yes, they're basically you're feeding them sugar water. It's not good for them. I mean, it's technically chemistry wise like providing the same sugar to water ratio, but it's not like I don't know, like technically eating a fucking Twinkies is the same as like eating a banana in terms of calories. It's empty calories. Yeah, it's empty calories. It's not the same. And we talked about it a little. I don't know if we. We've recorded this and not in order. So there's an episode we've talked about, and I don't know if it's come out yet because I don't remember which one it was, that we talked about the problem with the late summer, early fall nectar. Do you remember that? Where we talked about like it, it crystallizes and it can kill the bees. So if you let them have just that honey, they'll end up dying. Mm -hmm. But that's something that also happens is beekeepers will harvest that late summer honey and then there'll be a little bit left and maybe they'll leave it because it was like that late summer, but it's not you know, a full super, so they're not going to pull it off or they just said, you know what, it's only 10, 20 pounds. It's not worth my time. But oftentimes that honey isn't good. It's honey that they want to use while it's still warm out before it gets cold out because it, it doesn't store well. So it's like we, we've just really created like a giant mess with the way we manage these Langstroth hives, at least the way conventional beekeeping does it today. Okay, so bees are dormant, but they still eat. It's not like they have like a full hibernation. And so they still need to have access to the honey and moving it around when you're not sure of where they're at is can be detrimental is what you're saying. We don't really know what's going on. Well, we do know what's going on, but we don't care apparently is the problem. Oh, so you're just doing it wrong on purpose. That's fine. I, honestly, it sometimes feels like that. I think what's happened is the science or the practices haven't kept up with the science. And again, a lot of good beekeepers will say, I keep sugar water available for them or you know whatever it is um i leave a little bit of honey but like you have to be more thoughtful about what that means what kind of honey what quality of honey now the point is that like yeah the hive is in like their hive right the bees are in their hive 
not only does that whole cluster eat all winter, they're not really hibernating because they're a warm weather species. So that's not something that they would naturally do. Mm -hmm. They just like freak out basically because it's cold because they're from warm places. And what they do is they become this cluster to keep the queen warm and they slowly move up the hive as like one unit to grab the honey. And they'll go up about a millimeter a day eating the honey that they plan to keep above them for the winter. A winter cluster of bees takes up 8 to 10 inches, leaving maybe an inch in the bottom box of that, that medium or deep, and then relying on the medium or deep above. The point is that there's very little honey in the brood box. Most of it should be higher up because you've got this ball of bees that's slowly moving up in the hive, right? The honey would normally be just above them if we didn't harvest the honey in the super, right? But the super's often been removed in conventional beekeeping today. That means that the honey left in the nest box, like on the sides, which they don't normally go for, will have to survive the entire winter. Now, they will move to the left and the right, but they don't like to. They like to just slowly move up, follow the heat, and then, like, it's just what they do. Okay, so they just rotate around the hive, taking turns to eat, and sort of working their shifts and splits. So the hive tries to move up throughout the winter, like I said, to retain that heat and to eat the honey. And uh, they'll want to put it above the hive because that's what they do in nature, like we've said. Now, when it comes to like heating the home or heating the bees or whatever, the queen will be in the center, obviously. The worker bees will surround her, and the drones and the older worker bees will be on the edges. Their job is basically to keep the rest of the hive warm. So the root of the problem is obvious. A bee colony isn't some honey-making machine, but like a living intelligent creature that we're totally ignoring its needs, right? We're doing what it needs to survive in the most like literal sense and not understanding how it lives, right? Yeah, I guess it's kind of like treating an animal like a machine and it's probably not really going to work. It's not just plug and play. So could we use like extra deep frames for bees to make like a more natural hive so they can make it their own like shape or I don't but know. So they can make it their shape and like taller so yeah. they can access the honey. Yeah. Right. I could answer that. But first we're gonna we're gonna go on break so we can uh hear this fantastic advertisement. I mean, yeah, I used to hate commercials, but I guess it's not that bad on this side of them because I guess we don't have to listen, and it's always a surprise each episode to see how much time we wasted it for everyone for, you know, 15 or 30 seconds or however long they are. I love ads, especially the ones where it's like you chopping off your leg or something like that. <laughs> only, oh, God. <laughs> only thing that's better than, you know, highly researched content. Hey there, it's me, Crazy Norm, down at Normal Norm's Nut Emporium on John Brown Drive. We're going nuts for nuts in Nutty November. We've got big nuts, small nuts, chestnuts, ground nuts, nut butter, buttery nuts, nut milk, milky nuts, nut cream, creamy nuts, and the for the late night crowd, chocolate covered CBD, deep fried nuts. Want to join the nut extravaganza? Nut up and join the nut posse. Join other members and get your sack of nuts pounded for free whenever you come in and make the creamiest nut milk you've ever had in your own kitchen. Crazy Norm's Nut Emporium, 420 John Brown Drive, or online at fourprols.com. We're back with the freshest content, the dopest research, and the deepest frames. All right. So what is the answer about those extra deep frames? Is it like Texas where if it's extra big or whatever, it's better? So much like 
Texas, it's complicated. So not only can we make extra deep frames, people do and uh, very often should, to be honest. The The challenge really is that the frames are heavy and beekeeping can be a bit cultish around like treatment methods and the box rotations. So like if you've taken a beekeeping class, you've probably been uh, never even like discussed no treatment methods. It's very uncommon to be uh, supported in a conventional beekeeping association for a number of reasons, because they're petrified of disease and blame everyone that doesn't treat for those problems. I'm already getting into it. Like, I, I don't really want to talk about like the bee management problem because that's something that we're, you know, obviously it's not working. And I think we've been kind of hinting that at throughout this entire series. I don't want to go into like a, a fight about it, but rather articulate our, you know, perspective on how to handle bees and how to manage bees and how to make them successful. The point is that like the people that are using these extra deep frames that you're asking about, they're doing it, but they tend to try to fly under the radar. I mean, I think that's funny. You think this is turning into a fight when it's really just you talking about beefs to yourself? It's going to be beef. It's what's for dinner, Elliot. Okay. Beef. <laughs> Come on. So the extra, extra large frames, the bees could still move side to side separated by, you know, drone size or queen size holes or whatever, right? Like they're... In <laughs> And the same thing happens vertically during the winter? Yeah, so they can use these horizontal hives and get through them as they need to. Now, the extra deep frames are much, much more popular in places like Eastern Europe because they've been there for longer and they weren't as inundated with the Langstroth hive model. So I'm going to show you it real quick. I'm, sending, I'm showing you this link right now on how to build a long, what's called a long Langstroth hive. And um, we actually have already talked about the top bar hive, so it should probably look pretty familiar for you. How's that look, buddy? Okay, so just to keep the audience in a loop, because I'm physically looking at a picture right now, and we're on a, an audio medium, so this might get a little weird, but I feel like I should do like a play-by-play. -play. Give me that full uh, John Madden. I mean, this isn't like a Rorschach test. It looks like a beehive and like a coffee table. <laughs> okay, could you describe it a little bit more than a beehive coffee table? Yeah, so it's a beehive coffee table with mail slots. Okay, we can go with that. So the one I sent you cost 50 bucks to make, first off. So I, or at least did back then. It probably is like $100 to make now, which is pretty cool. Like building a beehive for $100 after we just talked about how Langstroths are the cheapest to buy pre-built. And I didn't mention it, but you're probably looking at like $600 to buy a conventional Langstroth beehive. So, like, that's cool, right? That you can build one for $100. It's basically like a top bar hive body concept, and it's applied to Langstroth dimensions. Now, that might sound confusing, but literally it's like they took the frames from a Langstroth beehive and said, how can we build a long, like, where there's no mediums, there's no deeps, there's just one that's a big, like, a choo-choo train. I don't know why I called it a choo-choo train, just a train because I'm an adult. <laughs> where you just put the, where you just put them all in, uh, like in a row, right? Uh, but it's basically a top bar hive, but designed around a, a Langstroth frame, and that's called a long Langstroth frame. Now it fixes a lot of the issues by making them deeper to increase room for that honey production above, and being able to make them as basically as deep as you want, while still using a lot of the same easy to source materials especially for people who started like me with Langstroths and got tired of the things that they didn't like about Langstroths. Okay. 
So besides the obvious fact that size matters for bees, are there any other impacts to bees from these different styles or approaches to making hives? So research at this point doesn't show any like definitive differences on like productivity or microbial makeup of the hive. All right, that's a uh, no. But we're going to get no. to the yes and no part. There's more. Don't worry. So the mites we've covered a bit in the previous episodes are also theoretically um, not significantly different. Although, again, there hasn't been a lot of testing on this. Uh, ultimately, I think they will show it to be healthier because you're not opening them up and exposing them and destroying the ecosystem that has been built inside the hive, right? Where it's being constantly exposed because it uses that propolis in nature to basically paste the entire walls of the hive in our conventional beekeeping that we do they don't do that because we don't give them the opportunity to do that but like they're doing that for a purpose right and all that stuff is super hypoallergenic and like full of really great like antibiotic properties and stuff so like obviously not having it is probably not good for them and i think giving them the opportunity to use it as much as they can because we're not opening and closing the hive is probably going to be good for them but we don't have the data at this point to show that. A lot of the stuff that we're seeing basically is really anecdotal. Now, there are other hives like the plastic Langstroths, which obviously are kind of gimmicky and unsurprisingly like have problems with moisture retention. And um, I, I really wouldn't recommend them. The last thing I did want to bring up is that there is another version of the Langstroth hive, basically another version of it that's called a Farrar hive which is basically taking the idea that the bees would like a little more space consistently. So you're, instead of just like putting a frame on or a medium on or super on every like month or two, you're putting these like tiny mediums on or, you know, whatever you want to call them, shallows, like super shallows and putting them on all the time. There has been proof that that has increased honey production by like 15% doesn't mean it's necessarily better for the bees though so there's there's a lot out there is my point yeah i mean it sounds like a lot of work for the bees and i don't know going out they, for your they, weekly frames yeah but i mean we know that bees don't like empty space so it, it might put a little bit of stress on them yeah basically so i mentioned earlier i had a few other reservations with traditional langstroth hives and i wanted to touch quickly on those the first one should be the obvious one which is insulation our good revy friend revy what the hell did you call him? That was great. Sweet low, baby. Sweet low. Sweet low understood this. But it does seem to have been lost to time. And today, many people are trying to reconstruct hives to insulate the sides and the roof to help reduce how much energy the bees have to use to stay warm. It's not that like this was necessarily forgotten, but that like wood is just thinner than it was back then. Yeah, back then, back in your day. Yeah, my day, Elliot. I was born, I was from the 1830s. You were so ready to just be an old man and just yell at the world. You're so ready. So ready. Research has actually shown hives that are more insulated do consume just as much honey, which might seem like a bad thing, but it's actually because there's less mortality, making the hive ultimately stronger for the spring. Okay. So they still, they still need the honey, is my point, even if we fix the insulation problem. What's happening is like in the hive, even if it's insulated, the exterior layers are still dying off like an onion because they're getting old. It's not just the cold, but they're also just like getting old. 
Now, as the hive starts running out of food when they're not insulated, or even if they're insulated and they know they're running out of food, they're going to start sacrificing the older bees, sometimes kicking them out of the hives. Okay, so they just double down. Yeah, something like that. The insulation is more than just about honey storage. It's about keeping the colony stronger over the long term by having more bees, right? And the application of insulation is basically shown around a 25% increase of survival. Okay, so the Langstroth hive is sort of recyclable. Yeah, like we, we can salvage it, right? Like it's not a bad design. It works. We have to understand the limitations of it. If it's a good fit for people listening or, you know, whatever the, the utility might be. The reason why it's so popular in conventional agriculture or apiaries is because they're very easy to move. They don't have a large footprint, so you can shove them on a, a loading truck and move them across the country. Whereas the long langstroths, which we just talked about, or top bars, they take up a lot more space and they just don't work for that reason. So, you know, it, it's basically, you know, up to the people and their needs, their interests, their concerns. Uh, I don't want to completely dismiss the Langstroth because, like I said, there are perks. But hopefully if you're new to beekeeping, this will give you like a fairish critique uh, of the hive that your local beekeeping class will probably tell you to get. Now, next week, we'll talk about top bars and why I'm a fan of them and why the Langy Boy, when it's a long Langy Boy, deserves some respect. Oh, I guess that's I guess that's unbiased. Yeah, I'm I'm the most unbiased person. Much like Trump, no one has ever met a less biased person than me. Well said. Well said. I just think it's funny that <laughs> sweet low Langstroth spent like a whole bunch of time watching bees. More time than we've spent talking about bees. Yes, a lot of time. What centimeter did we learn? What centimeter? I mean, he figured out they like a centimeter or whatever you said. I it was like, yeah, just under a centimeter. Yeah, yeah. What have we learned about bees in all this time? Nothing? Bees nuts. God damn it. I, this better be the end of the episode. <laughs> we are done. I uh, just, length- music, Dom, just put the music in. Music.